Well, this is a strange chapter, and uh, more is going on, perhaps, than you realize. We'll get to it in a moment. Let me do a little review. Chapter 1, God is at work in the darkest of times, a famine in Judah, Bethlehem, where Naomi and her husband Elimelech live, so they, whether right or not, I don't know, went to Moab, and in Moab uh, found food for a season, and Elimelech died. Her sons, Malon and Chilion, married foreign women, and for ten years had no children, And then her sons died. And then she decides to go back when the famine is lifting. And only one of her daughters-in-law will go with her, namely namely Ruth. And she goes. And so at the end of that chapter, she says, The Lord has, has dealt bitterly with me. And that's true. There are bitter providences and there are sweet providences. And... And this book is about to end on some amazingly sweet providences. But at the beginning, and the whole point, I think, of the book is to try to help God's people in the darkest of times realize how life really flows, how how life moves. And at the end of the chapter, uh, they come at the the beginning of barley harvest. And, And it's in the barley harvest where all the providences will turn from dark to to sweet. So there's an opening, there's a, a crack in the dark cloud that is over Naomi's life. Might be good to give one illustration of, of this kind of pilgrimage from our church. Um, I've been at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota for 28 years as a pastor. In 1993, uh, I picked up a phone and heard a recorded message that sounded romantic. And it was not from one of our staff to his wife. It was from one of our staff to another one of our staff. And I sat there and asked, can this be what it sounds like? And... uh, I was persuaded it was. There was no other explanation for this sound. So I immediately went to them and brought them into my office with my colleague, and uh, they, re- they denied it, the, the man and the woman. And for six weeks, it was hellish in our church because I would not back down. I said, that is romance. There is no other explanation for that tone of voice. And they denied it, and the church almost blew to pieces because I was being accused of finding fault with a staff member with whom I had worked for 10 years. A very serious fault. I mean, there was no way to restore this, right? Even if I'm wrong, there's no way to restore this. This is horrible. God moved, as I believe he did, and brought him late at night, called me on the phone, said, I have to meet you at church. 11 o'clock, six of the elders And he were there, and he confessed to seven years of adultery. The upshot of that was that 230 people left our church. And uh, those were very dark days, days in which I couldn't preach because the people were so angry with me. This never is clean. You're never vindicated in a situation like this. This is always ugly, no matter whether you're right or not. It doesn't really matter. And so uh, 230 people left the church. We didn't grow in our church for three years. It was flat. It was sorrowful. And uh, surviving was all we could do, just keep our nose above the water. Now, those were days, I, I would say, like the days in Moab, in which uh, people died, as it were. There were people who, who lost their faith through that. They walked away from the Lord. And uh, as I look back now, I would say 
the Lord's hand was on us for good. It was horrible. And the Lord's hand was on us for good. Lots of good came from it. Uh, we are, as a church, three times the size we were in those days. Though for three years, people were just walking away. The Lord was humbling us. He was, I believe, purifying us. He was breaking us. Uh, he was showing us that we had much to learn and that we couldn't do it on our own. He was transforming our worship life entirely. He was crafting a vision statement that is now the vision statement of my life and of our church. I exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. That mission statement was forged in the fires of that Moab experience. And so you're going to go there, young people. You will be there eventually. If you haven't walked through the days yet, you will have your chapter one of Ruth eventually. These things are in the Bible to prepare you to know how to see the hidden hand of God when it looks like he is simply dealing you bitterness day after day. That was chapter one. Last night, I focused on two things. I focused first on verse three. You might look at it in chapter two. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. In other words, Boaz is a relative of Naomi and Elimelech. He can marry Ruth and continue the line. He can redeem the situation, redeem her na his name and, and carry it forward. Naomi had forgotten about this. In her darkness, she had, hadn't remembered. There was little hope out there in the future. Boaz, she might not have thought of him anyway because he's older, calls Ruth daughter. And he calls himself older by saying, you didn't go after the younger men. So there's Boaz, and she happens onto his field. And I paused at that moment and told a little story about how I just happened to live this life. And, and instant after instant in my life, I just did what I thought was the next best thing. And, and uh, the Lord put together this life. If you had asked my pastor and when I was in the ninth grade and couldn't at all speak in front of a group. I mean, physically impossible because of the depths of my nervousness and my insecurities in high school that I would one day be standing in England talking to a group like this. He would have laughed and said, that is never, ever going to happen. John might be a veterinarian or something. His hands shake too much to operate on real people. So he will operate on dogs and cats maybe. But actually speak in front of a group, never. So this life that I live is um, a life I would have never dreamed. So I stressed the fact that God plans your life. Ultimately, you don't plan your life. Now, in a moment, I'm going to turn the table. Some of you are very uncomfortable with that way of approaching life, and you should be in one sense because planning is very important. And chapter 3 is all about planning. <laughs> Ruth and Naomi have a plan. It's a very strange plan. <laughs> Go down there and lie down. and Oh, this is really strange. But it's a plan. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn the tables and say, even though you don't ultimately plan your life, you plan today. And you plan a free gospel effort to give 400,000 students a gospel of Mark, and that's right. You should do that. You have no idea what's going to come of this ultimately. Glorious things are going to come, worse and better than you probably dream. But you should plan. But that's coming in a minute. So that's one of the things I did last night was focus on verse 3. The other thing I did last night was look at verse 10. So go there with me. 
verse 10 of chapter 2. Then she fell on her face. Boaz has received her, protected her, uh, given her food, given her drink, and protected her from the young men. She fell on her face, bowing down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? She simply stunned at his his mercy, and she asks about the origin of this mercy and, and this kindness. Boaz, in verse 12, responds as though she had asked, why has the Lord treated me with such favor? Because both Ruth and Boaz see the hand of God behind everything, and ultimately the mercy flowing to her is flowing through Boaz to Ruth. So he says in verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, if you stopped right there, the answer to her question would seem to be, the Lord is repaying you, and I, with his help, am blessing you because of what you have done. You have loved Naomi. You've treated Naomi with such respect and care and humility. And then he adds, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And I took that as the key. Now, some of you, I'm sure, were sensitive to discern that the issue I was addressing at this point last night was the issue of how faith relates to works. In the larger theological scheme of justification and then final rewards in heaven. And I was arguing that the relationship between these two things, you have loved Naomi, you have lived a life of, of humility and care and love. And the other thing, you take refuge under the wings of God. That sets up the issue for me. How do they relate to each other? How does flying like a little eaglet under the great and glorious wings of the grace of eagle God, how does that cleaving to mercy alone relate to behaviors of love? And uh, all too quickly, I, I, I sent you to Galatians 5, 6. I just tossed it off. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. The kind of faith that justifies is faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. I'm sure you've heard that phrase from Martin Luther and others along the way. It's a very helpful phrase. It helps sort out this issue of if we're justified, that is, we, if we have our right standing with God, if he affirms us, approves us, accepts us as righteous because of Christ on the basis of union with him by faith alone, if that's true, where does obedience and work, loving Naomi, going back to Bethlehem with Naomi, fit in? And it fits in as the fruit of faith. Because Ruth is hiding under the wings of God as all these bitter providences are coming, she's able to maintain hope and joy and peace and rest in her God. She's not angry at God. She's not fretful about the future. She laughs at the future. She is fearless. This is the kind of woman she's being presented to us. Under the wings of God, she is fearless about the future. And when you're fearless and hopeful about the future, you're able to have resources for others instead of always wanting others to serve you. And so she's there for Naomi. That's the Christian life, I think, implied in these few verses 
And I want to take you to a passage in Luke. If you have your Bible and you want to go with me, I really feel I ought to underline this with a piece of teaching from the Lord Jesus. Luke chapter 18. So this puts the words of Jesus on what I just said so that you can underline it with his authority. Luke 18, verse 9, he told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now, that is very important. Get that. He is telling this parable because there are those who trust in themselves that they are righteous. Ruth is just flying under the wings. She's falling down. She's humble. She's not claiming. She's not trying to present payment to God as an employer for which she will get the reward of righteousness. She is broken, humble, lowly, like a little chick running under the hen's wing. And he wants to tell a parable about the people who aren't like that. And then there's a man in this parable like that. Who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's what you do when you're self-righteous. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So there he is calling attention to his behavior. This is what he will present to God as the ground of his acceptance and righteousness. And that's what Jesus is against. Those, remember from verse 9, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's this man. He just laid out his righteousness. He does good things. He cares for Naomi. How you get the order here is so important. It's a good thing to care for Naomi. It's not a good thing to present your care for Naomi as the ground of your acceptance with God, which is what he's doing. Now, the, the other man here is in verse 13. But the tax collector standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, that's flying under the wings. I just need protection from your wrath. I need your wings to cover me. I have nothing to claim. I don't put my righteousness forward here, or my, my care for, for Naomi here is not the ground of my flying under these wings. I'm just under here because you are my God. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there's nothing better in all the world. I'm just here because I'm a sinner and you're a savior and I'm unrighteous and you're righteous and I'm going to trust you and that's all I've got on my judgment day. And Jesus responds like this. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. There's that great, glorious word, justified. Rather than the other, that's a frightening statement. Rather than the other. He, he, didn't, he didn't go down to his house justified. He wasn't justified. You present your list of deeds to God as the ground of your justification, it won't happen. That's what it says. Rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself. So that's what I was moving toward last night in verse 10 and 12. Let me give you one other thing that I didn't say last night. Look at verse 20 of chapter 2. Naomi said to her daughter when she comes back with this report about how good Boaz was to her, may he be blessed by the Lord whose, now that whose there refers to the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And I just want you to see 
that the sky has opened for Naomi. She has moved from the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me to saying the Lord's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. We sing a lot of British hymns because the Wesleys wrote a lot of great hymns and because William Cooper wrote great hymns. Now, you know, you know your, your great hymn writer, William Cooper, um, never got out of chapter one. He was suicidal all his life. Tried to kill himself, what, three times? John Newton loved him so dearly. Never forsook him. I love that relationship. And he wrote a song that when we preached the Gospel of Ruth back in 1984, we sang it every Sunday for four weeks. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. You can write things like that and never seem to rise above it. Isn't it amazing that God will take you in Ruth 1, if you have to live there all your life, and use you for John Piper 200 years later? I love that song. I live that song. Dark things come into my life almost every day. And William Cooper ministers to my heart, suicidal though he was. Well, it's time to go to chapter 3. I'm not trying to get away from it. In fact, I love it. So let's go there. Chapter 3. I have one phrase I want you to keep in mind in this chapter. And that is uh, the phrase strategic righteousness. It's my phrase. I'm not borrowing it from anybody. It may not be the best. I'll explain what I mean. By righteousness, I, I mean something very simple of doing the, the right thing, doing the God-honoring thing, doing the thing that looks uh, wise and God-centered in the moment, Trusting in the Lord, just doing right. Strategic means that you, you have put some thought into this. This is why I said I'm turning the tables on the non-plan emphasis from last night. Do, do plan. Let your righteousness be thought about. Plan some righteous behavior at the university this fall. Plan some righteous activity. Plan how to grow in righteousness. Plan how to treat people righteously. So, what we have here, first in Naomi, and then in Ruth, and then in Boaz. We'll take them just like that. We have strategic righteousness. So, first, Naomi in verses 1 to 5. And then Ruth in verses 6 to 9. And then Boaz in verses 10 to 15. We have Three of them acting out strategic righteousness. So 
So first, Naomi in verses 1 to 5. The, the sheer fact that Naomi has a plan is very significant. Here's, here's the significance. When you are hopeless, as she was, apparently, for a season in chapter 1, you don't dream dreams. Hopeless people don't dream dreams. They don't make plans. They don't pour thousands and thousands of dollars or pounds into conceiving and printing 400,000 copies of Mark. You don't do that if you're hopeless. You dream dreams and you make plans when God is reminding you and helping you feel encouraged that there's going to be a tomorrow and there's going to be some significance in your life and then dreams begin to happen. So the very fact that Naomi has this strange plan to send Ruth down there at night means she's begun to feel like there's a future, like there's hope. And her plan, of course, is I'm going to get a husband for you, Ruth. I'm going, this Boaz that you have happened onto his field, oh yes, Boaz is a... is. Elimelech's kinsman. And so she thinks that through and she comes up with her plan. A very, very strange plan. So let's read it. Verses 3 and 4. It says, Do her daughter-in-law wash <laughs> therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and Go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Go to the threshing floor, dressed and clean. And after he's gone to sleep, lift the blanket and lie down at his feet. Now, at that point, you're thinking, Ruth is thinking, everybody's thinking. What are you telling her to do? <laughs> and instead of answering the question, which everybody's asking. Everybody's asking. Instead of answering the question, she says, he'll tell you what to do. I'm not going to tell you. He'll tell you what to do. Very kind of breathtaking. What? That's not clear as to what's going to happen here. You start to think about the possibilities here. One possibility would be, he wakes up. He's a godly man. He's been presented as a godly man. And he drives her away and says, I thought you were worthy. That'd be one possibility. Get out of my life. Wouldn't be interested in any woman who would act like that. That's, that's a risk that Naomi's taking. Or the possibility that most people would think of is he would look down there, being a man, She's obviously presenting herself, and, and he simply has sex with her. Now, both of those are bad ideas. That's not a good plan. Fornication was wrong in the Old Testament, and it's wrong today. It was wrong then, and it's wrong now. And Naomi knew it was wrong, and Ruth knew it was wrong, and Boaz knew it was wrong. And yet, he wants, Naomi wants this to happen. She wants this to work. So what in the world is she doing? Presenting this, this idea to her daughter-in-law to go down there in such a sexually alluring and tempting way. 
or, or will he have enough integrity to say, so you are offering yourself to me as a, a wife. Thank you. I will take care of it with the elders tomorrow. And we will move on this in a proper way. Well, if that's the plan, it's really risky and really, really strange. So much for Naomi's strategic righteousness. That's the plan. She's, she wants Boaz to marry Ruth. And she's sending Ruth down there in this inexplicable, so far, behavior. But it's a plan. And we will see a remarkably subtle, profound plan. So now we turn to Ruth and her participation in this strategic righteousness. Verses 6 through 9. Let's read these. So in verse 5, she says to her mother-in-law, everything you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the grain, the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered. Now, what she says here, according to the text anyway, Naomi hadn't prompted her on this. Naomi hadn't put the words in her mouth. She said, do that. He'll tell you what to do. So these words now are words perhaps that they agreed on. Doesn't say that. These are Naomi's, I mean, uh, Ruth's words. She says to him, now, the translations here are going to go haywire in your versions, all right? So we got to decide what is going on here. In the ESV, it says, spread your wings over your servant. Now, your version, if you've got the NIV, says garment. The King James says skirt. The NASB says covering. Only the ESV does this wings thing. So let's just go with garment. Because if wings is proper, it's a double meaning, and we may be on to something. But you're reading garment if you got the NIV or the NASB or the King James Version or some other version. That's really the common, ordinary one. We'll come back to that. So she says, spread your garment or whatever this wings thing is over me, over your servant, for you are a redeemer. In other words, I know, my mother-in-law knows, you're the relative who could marry me, give the name of my husband, Malon, a future, and perhaps more if we had children. It's really clear what she's saying. What is going on with this word, skirt, garment, covering, that the ESV translates wings? So, Really helps to know your Hebrew here. So I, I got it out. Got it out again last night. Got it out 24 years ago. Did I, I looked at every one of them again last night. The word uh, is used what, 34 times in the Old Testament. Maybe all but four is wings. Wings of angels in Ezekiel. Wings of birds. Wings. It's wings. It's just wings. few times, because of the context, it seems to mean garment in some kind of metaphorical way. There's one other place outside of Ruth where it's used in relationship to lovers. I'm going to read that one to you. 
It's Ezekiel 16, verse 8. Now, Ezekiel 16 is one of the most beautiful and horrible chapters in the Bible about God's coming and marrying Israel. Finding her like a baby weltering in, in, in its blood. Utterly disgusting. Thrown out to die. And God sees this horrible scene. And he, and he takes the baby. And when she's grown, he marries her. So here's verse 8. When I passed by you again, in other words, later when you'd grown, and looked upon you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread my garment, my skirt. Now, that's the same word. I spread my skirt, my garment, my covering, my wings over you and covered your nakedness. Yea, I plighted my troth to you and entered into covenant with you, says the Lord, and you became mine. That's the closest analogy in the Old Testament to this text and the use of the word wings. So it would be, I think, very contrary to the author's intention and Ruth's intention if we jumped to the conclusion that what's going on here is a conniving mother-in-law and a risque, loose woman, Ruth, to get a man. That's not the feel if you know the language. This is language of God covering Israel and making a covenant with her when she was very unworthy and had been so despicable in her weltering blood. So, if there's an offer going on here, which there clearly is, it is a noble offer. It's an offer of a desire for a covenant relationship and for something like a, a covering of God to happen from Boaz. I want you to cover me, Boaz, with your wings. Now... I'm sure some of you are already ahead of me in where I'm going from last night. There's only one other place in this book where the word wings is used. Back in chapter 2, verse 12. Boaz had said, you've come to my field seeking help from me seeking protection from me and, and seeking food in my field and seeking water at my well. And you're asking, why have you found this favor? And his answer comes back, you took refuge under the wings of God when you came here. It's Boaz who sowed the seed in Ruth's mind, that there's a connection between Boaz and his care and his protection and his provision and his love as a possible husband and God as the one under whose wings she has lived now for about 10 years or so and where she finds her security. Boaz sowed the seed of that connection. And she goes home, evidently, and, and talks this over with Naomi. He said this, and he did this, and he did this. And they sit down, either together or, I don't know how, I'm just guessing. And they say, all right, we can't be really sure that's what he meant. That he was really suggesting that you're coming to him, finding his resources and his provision and his protection and his leadership husband-like, has a relationship to your going to God so that if you go to God, you go to Him. If you go to Him, you go to God. And He really, really would like to be that for you. He's an older man. He's set, not married, but is He really saying that He's open to this? 
And I think what they hit upon is a symbolic activity that is just as subtle and profound as Boaz's words to Ruth were on the field. You're coming to me and my field, my protection, my food, and seeking security, provision, rest. And I, I recognize in that that you are a godly woman, that you take refuge under God's wings. Implicit, that's the kind of woman I would like to take under my wing. So she goes, she lies down, she puts the cover over her, and she waits. He awakens. Who are you? And at this moment, everything hangs on what response he's going to give to this sentence. Because she's going to take words upon her lips that experiments with whether she's got it right. She's She's going to say, I'm Ruth. Would you cover me? With your wing. In other words, he'll understand what I'm saying if I've got it right. He'll understand what I'm saying. And if I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. That's Ruth's strategic righteousness. She thought, she planned, very subtle. I mean, I. I I hardly know what to say here in terms of what this implies concerning the delicacy, the subtlety, and the profundity of relations. I mean, Boaz, I just try to imagine, and this is an awful thing to do, but let me do it. This is terrible. Suppose my wife died. hope she doesn't before I do. I'm 62. Should I remarry? How old should the woman be that I remarry? 40? 50? 60? 70? What if there were a 45-year-old woman in my church that I just wondered, just wondered if it could work? That would be a hard thing to approach, wouldn't it? I mean, what if she said, you're 62. <laughs> you, you just feel so humiliated. You would just, thank you, I didn't mean it. I just, I just. So I just try to put myself in Boaz's shoes. He, what, what he says to her is, you haven't gone after any of the younger men. You've come to me. He, he's, he's amazed. He wanted it, but he wasn't sure that he could. So what do you do? And, and, and I think the answer is you do something very delicate, something very subtle, something very profound. I, I wouldn't have that skill, I'm sure, to be able to do it. But he said it. She got it. She returned the subtlety. And then you've got clarity. And now we turn to, what does he do? What does Boaz do here? So let's go to Boaz and finish with him. Verses 10 to 15. He said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, daughter, You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. Now, the two things she could have feared, she's going to be raped or she's going to be rejected as a slut. And he won't do either of those. 
My daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. You've called me the Redeemer. You've said you're willing. I'm going for it. I'll do all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know, you are a worthy woman. And now it's true that I am a Redeemer. In other words, I'm a relative of Elimelech. You there, yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. There's another relative. We haven't heard of him before. He just shows up here and we all want to say, no! That's a bad turn of affairs. What? I thought the story was over. Oh, no. There is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Oh, come on. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Now we're going to, we're going to pick it up there, but let me just close with, with uh, a comment about Boaz here. This is strategic righteousness big time, is it not? It's midnight. Stars are out. He's been drinking and feeling merry. The woman that he wonders if in his wildest dreams might be willing to take an older man has come washed and smelling beautiful and lay down at his feet and put his blanket over her and said, cover me with your wing. Some of you guys have been in that situation. Some of you gals have been in that situation. He hears her offer. I'm here and I would like you to be my husband. And you got two choices here. You can say, because of righteousness, we will wait. Or we won't wait. We're just going to have sex now and we'll get married tomorrow. And I just would like to close by, by pleading with you to be like Boaz and Ruth. They were good lovers. Oh, there was supercharged power going on under that blanket. <laughs> under those stars, these two people were ready to have sex. Can you believe they didn't? You lie here until the morning, then I'm going to go do what has to be done to make this righteous. I tell you, young people, many of you have already blown it. You're not virgins anymore. God can have mercy upon you, and he, he will. If you turn to Him, He can cleanse you, make a beautiful relationship in the future. I know that He can. If you still have not had sex, I just plead with you, stand with Boaz, stand with Ruth, embrace a strategic righteousness. And let me put it in a, in a larger context for you. What's going on here? is the making of the ancestor of Jesus. Ruth is about to be from Moab, folded purely and righteously into a line that will result in Jesus Christ. The purity of the moment and the purposes of eternity link right here. And that's true for you. If you will, in the safety of your apartment, where she seems so willing, say, we will wait. God will honor that. He will honor that more vastly 
than you can imagine. Because here he honored it with the last chapter and the coming of Jesus Christ as the result of this holy union. And so I just plead with you to let the the beautiful, strategic righteousness of Naomi's risky plan and Ruth's sensitive discerning of this older man's heart and this older man's massive willpower to say, uh, you just lie there and we will wait. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the temptations, whether it's Britain, America, whether it's old or young, the sexual temptations of our day are pervasive and they are powerful, just like they were that night in Bethlehem. 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 Where a virgin gave birth to Jesus. the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of a pure union of Ruth and Boaz. Lord, make these young people pure. May they they hear the laughter, the scorn of those around them who say, what? You're not going to do sex? What kind of an idiot are you? When they hear that, Lord, I pray that they will see Boaz and Ruth looking down from heaven in their massive, beautiful manhood and womanhood and strength and purpose and courage and purity and righteousness and strategy. And they say, no, 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 no. I know where I'm standing. I know what life is about. I know how purity relates to the grand purposes of God. I'm waiting. Pray that you'd work that in Jesus' name.